Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Brandy. Um, I was born in Palmer, Alaska, but I was actually raised in Arizona. Um, we moved here when I was 17. Um, and then I was actually raised Mormon, became a Christian when I was 20. And I always wanted to be a mom. Like from from when I was a teenager, I knew I was going to be a mom. Like my entire life, I've just known that I was like destined to be a mom. And so that was probably the hardest part is um, being single and realizing like, well, maybe that's not for me. No matter how I pictured life um, or thought the timeline would go, God kind of just laughed at me the whole time and was like, ha, oh, that's funny. I have a way better plan. Um, and so I really learned how to be intimate with God in my singleness. And through that, everything that he ever wanted for my life continues to happen in his timeline, not whatever I thought was the right timeline. Yeah, so crazy enough, I actually had never considered adoption. I knew it was something that existed, and I remember like we had kids growing up, um, you know, classmates that were adopted, and I was like, okay, cool, some people are adopted, and that's really all I knew about adoption. Um, when I became a Christian is when that desire was placed on my heart. Um, it was really, it was like a knowing. I just knew that some of my children were going to be adopted. I can't actually really explain. I just knew. I ended up getting enrolled with the Parker program and that program was specifically older kiddos where reunification was no longer the goal and then just waiting like I remember being the waiting um, and again really having to trust God of like okay you're asking me to sit here and wait like I don't know whether that's going to be a week a year five years my agent um, she was describing this kid and um, she was just describing this kid that loved being outdoors, total Alaskan kid. And I just had this like overwhelming feeling. And it is, it's that feeling of like when God's giving you confirmation about something and I had that confirmation like coming over me. I remember her just being like, well, the only thing is, is he's like a lot older than what your parameter is. So she's like, I don't know if you're gonna be okay with that. And I was like, well, how much older? Um, and so Aaron was 12 when he moved in with me. Um, which was way out of my age parameter. Um, but I always like to tell people I'm so will like I'm so happy that I chose to compromise on that one thing because if I hadn't like my son wouldn't be living with me. The fact that um, he was in care for four years before I was able to adopt him and that he just as sad as a mom now knowing that your child had to struggle for 12 years before being in a place that actually cared enough. Um, I always tell people like I would adopt older kids though over and over again. Like they are so precious and um, it only takes one adult to actually step in and care about their story to actually change the trajectory of where their life is going. Um, yeah, and he's literally just the coolest kid ever. And I would encourage single people to adopt. Like Alaska has so many children um, that need forever homes and until single or married start saying yes those kids are just waiting um you know aaron had to wait for four years 
before he was able to be adopted. Um, which is crazy to me that it took that long for someone to say yes. Um, my baby only had to wait four days. So you got a huge contrast there, but if the person's there saying yes from the get-go, those kids just have a better chance. And I knew going into adoption that I was gonna need that support from other adoptees um, that could speak into my children's lives. And so being at Church on the Rock, I've had the opportunity to not only show my children what being a Christian is like, so then they can hopefully make that choice for themselves, um, but we've been able to surround ourselves with a community that not only supports adoption, loves adoption, um, but actually understands too, like the struggles that come with adoption. Every dynamic is so unique in its own way, but without having that support system, you're gonna drown. <laughs> I don't think I could have gone through adoption and raising children um, without having some people to at least just poke at, like, is this normal, is this not normal? Obviously now looking back, I can see every moment where God was handpicking children and my husband and how we all just intertwine so perfectly. And now looking back, I'm like, I don't know why I ever question anything. <laughs> like when they say God's in control, like it's just not a joke. <laughs>tell you I think church should be a dangerous place to show up I think it should be risky every time you should think to yourself before you take off in the morning that God might say something to me today that might upend my world right and it could be really good and really beautiful um, we have our saying here during this time of year especially because even for my family um, uh, we have three girls that we've adopted, um, and when this time of year rolls around, I'm always like, if we can just make it through this month without them, like they're at this place where like, we need to adopt more, and then we come in and we see the heart gallery wall, and we're like, okay, we're not doing enough, and that challenge, right, I, we should feel that, we shouldn't ignore it, and so what we say is not everyone can do the same thing, but everyone can do something. And if you want to explore what that something might be for you tonight at the stand um, event here in this room, um, we're going to have lots of agencies and ministries that we partner with who are going to be here. You're going to get to figure out how you could connect, how you could partner, what part you could play. Um, also, I'll be sharing um, some of our story um, as a family uh, this evening. And so anyways, I would invite you to come back out. I dare you to come back out. Um, I double dog dare you to come back got to do it now. Um, we've been in this series, The Stand, and um, I just want to lay out a challenge real quick before we jump all the way in here. Is that okay? In fact, if you weren't expecting a challenge, you shouldn't have come today. Uh, it's kind of what we do every week, so here we are. Um, I want to challenge you to um, bring a Bible and I don't care if it's on your phone or whatever. I mean, you can take notes on there and you can underline on there or if it's on a device. or yeah, but, but have something that you're actually reading along. I know we put the verses on the screen for you. It's like being spoon-fed. And you're like, that's so nice. Thank you. But I want to challenge you. Try it for just one month, okay? One month. Bring a Bible. Have it open on your app or whatever. But read along on your own 
and then underline whenever God says something to you or whenever you're seeing something you haven't seen before and underline that. This is actually um, my Bible that I believe I had in Bible school. Um, And I look through this thing and I read through it and I'm like, man, all these notes over the years of things God said to me or things that stood out to me. It's just like, it is such a powerful tool. And then the second thing is this, bring something to write some notes down, whether it's on your phone or whether it's on a piece of paper. And just see if you don't walk away every single week with more than you had ever walked away with before, like hearing more from God, experiencing more. I'm I'm just going to lay the challenge out there. It's for free. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles right back there. If you have 12 of those Bibles that are back there at your house, please bring some of them back. Um, Other people can take them home. All right, there it is. That's the challenge. Let's close with a word of prayer. I'm just kidding. Here we go. We've been in Nehemiah, and we've been looking at this rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. We've sort of been taking that illustration, that imagery of rebuilding from the rubble, and applying it to what does it look like to stand with the vulnerable, the most vulnerable in our communities and our churches. And so as we've been exploring this, um, we've been looking at the challenge that Nehemiah faces, but we also looked at how God spoke to Nehemiah. And this is one of the things I love about the book of Nehemiah. Um, Nowhere in the book of Nehemiah does it say, the Lord said. Not once. Which I find is really comforting in a strange way because as I read through the Old Testament in particular, it feels as though God's talking to everybody. And I find myself wondering, why won't you talk to me? Anybody else ever felt that? Good, I'm the only, okay, there's four honest people in the room. Um, and yet what we discover is that God isn't always speaking verbally or with a writing on the wall or an angelic visitation to everyone. Many, most people are hearing from the Lord either by seeing a need and then joining God and meeting it or through his written word or through someone else. That's actually one of the primary ways. And Nehemiah is one of those people. He hears about a need back in Jerusalem and Nehemiah thinks to himself, maybe I'm the answer to my own prayer. Maybe I could be the one to join God in what he wants to do. He identifies the need, and he, he does not sit around waiting for God to tell him what to do. He takes action and trusts that if it is not what God wants him doing, God can redirect him. I think far too often we sit around waiting for God to tell us what to do when the needs are so obvious in front of us if we would just step into them. Maybe we're the answer to our own prayer. And so Nehemiah jumps in with both feet. God opens up the doors wide, and he finds himself in Jerusalem, starting the task of rebuilding the wall in Jerusalem. In fact, he's being taunted uh, endlessly by the surrounding nations, by religious leaders outside of his own community. He's being taunted and told, you'll never accomplish this. You'll never get this done. Uh, To give you um, some perspective, we're talking about roughly 2.5, five miles of wall that was eight feet thick and 40 feet tall with 34 towers and seven gates and doors built into it. Like we're talking about a serious project that he's taking on and it's all in shambles and in rubble and they're having to rebuild this thing and everyone around them is saying, you'll never get it done. It'll never happen. You won't accomplish it. And yet they do. In fact, not only do they accomplish it, they rebuild the wall in 52 days. (laughs) It's taken us like 52 years to get a parking lot. Like, I mean, (laughs) again, 52 days. And what he's identifying in the text 
is that all we did was join God in something God was doing. And all the nations around them recognize on this scale and this time frame, something supernatural is going on. Because Nehemiah's ultimate goal isn't the rebuilding of the wall. Nehemiah's ultimate goal is that the glory of God would be put on display in his generation. That's like, that's what he's after. And so in Nehemiah 6, verse 16, here's what it says. When our enemies and the surrounding nations heard about it, they were frightened and humiliated. They realized this work had been done with the help of our God. Like Nehemiah's ambition, his drive, is that the reputation of God would be upheld in his generation, that his generation would not be the generation that forgot what God had done in the past. And so he steps out and says, God, do it again. Let me join you in something you're up to. And what happens is God's glory is put on display in a supernatural way. If you show up at Church on the Rock and you believe that we're here to create a self-help environment or that we're here to create a bunch of good people who do good things, you've missed the whole point. We're a bunch of people who are struggling and wrestling and failing and getting back up and joining a supernatural God in what he's doing in the world. And the glory is his, not ours, right? Oh, that's good, preacher. I know, it's so good. <laughs> Nehemiah 8, the walls are rebuilt, things are reestablished. We're going to spend the bulk of our time in chapter 8 today. In October, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. I just want you to know, no one's ever come to me and said, hey, could you do a series on the law? But that's what they're requesting. Bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given Israel to obey. So on October 8th, Ezra, the priest, brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included, and I love that they put this in here, men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He's saying this is for everybody. Nobody's left out. We're inviting all the men and all the women and all the children who are old enough to understand to come hear the word of the Lord. And he faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon. Man, what a great church. <laughs> and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. It's an interesting detail because up until this point, all we've been told about is the construction of the wall. They've been building the wall, they've been building the gates, they've been putting in the doors, they've been building the towers, but now we're told that there was a other construction project going on at the same time. There was the building of a stage that was happening. Because Nehemiah's ultimate goal is not that the walls are rebuilt, his interest in the wall being rebuilt is so that the people could hear the word of the Lord. And so Ezra is going to step up onto this platform that's being built behind the scenes so that all the people can see him and they can hear the word of the Lord proclaimed. Verse 5, when they saw Ezra open the book, they all rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people shouted, amen, amen. 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 one chance. All the people shouted, as they lifted their hands, oh, it's the hand phobia. It's okay, you can lift your hands in worship and shout amen, both, okay. Uh, amen, amen, and they lifted their hands. 
Then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites and a whole bunch of other people instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. As a preacher, as a teacher, I love this passage of Scripture. He says they didn't just get up and read the Bible, because often I think uh, you hear sort of this idea, um, if you have your Bible, that's all you need. And that's true, but there's also the element of understanding your Bible. And here in this passage, he doesn't just get up and read the word of the Lord and say, there you go. They actually get up and explain the word of the Lord so that the people understand. I can only imagine, like, you're reading the law, and there's some weird stuff in the law, like about family relationships and who you can lay with and who you can't. And I'm imagining, like, there was a whole kids section of Levites who were, like, explained to the children, listen, earmuffs, how do I explain this? Right. But, but they're taking the time. It's actually what I love about Soma. In fact, hermeneutics, as terrifying as it sounds, is just the art and science of interpreting God's word. How do you read God's word and get his intended meaning out of it? That's really what it's all about. But they take the time, and they don't just read the word, but they explain its meaning to the people. Verse 9 then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the, uh, for the people said to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this, for today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. I don't know that I've ever had that experience on a Sunday. As I'm preaching, people just begin weeping. I see people like crying softly thinking, is he done yet? But this is different. Like, like why are they weeping in this moment? And, and what's happening is they are recognizing because for a generation, they have not had the word of the Lord read and explained to them. And what is dawning on them in this moment is that they have been living in rebellion to the living God. And they're grieved by this. And so... Ezra and Nehemiah and the Levites say to the people, no, 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 don't weep, don't mourn on this day. Today, and this is an interesting way to say it, today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. What comes to your mind when you think about what emotion should accompany a sacred day before the Lord your God? Like for me, if, uh, growing up in church world, I'm like, this is a solemn assembly uh, this is a day of reflection or quietness or somberness or repentance, right? Like, this is a day you get ready for because you're coming before the Lord. Like, weeping and mourning seem like a very appropriate response, and yet he's saying, no, 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 this is an inappropriate response. It's <laughs> an inappropriate response on a somber, right, on a holy, on a sacred day before the Lord your God. So how should you respond on a sacred day before the Lord your God? I'm so glad you asked because Nehemiah is going to tell him. And Nehemiah continued, go and celebrate with a feast of rich 
foods and brisket and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the Levites too quieted the people telling them, hush, don't weep for this is a sacred day. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal to share gifts of food and to celebrate with great joy because they had heard God's words and understood them. What if you reframed how you thought about repentance? Like in that moment when you feel convicted, even condemned, challenged in that moment when you felt like I need to fall on my face and repent? What if you viewed it as an opportunity rather than an oppression? What if you reframed what you think repentance actually looks like? What emotion accompanies repentance? Because on this sacred day when they've discovered that they've broken the law of God in just about every way conceivable, in this moment they're like, Stop the weeping. Do you understand the gift you've been given? What if you viewed repentance as a present, as a, as a gift that you were handed? I think it's really hard for us because depending on what environment you grew up in, you've often thought about um, repentance or being sorry as coming with a timeline, Right, like your dad's really upset about something. Fortunately, my kids have never had to deal with this because, you know, I just like forgive instantly and I move on. My son's here today. He, uh, but it, no, no, depending on the environment you grew up in, you have a timeline in mind. How long does it take? How long do I have to grovel? How long do I have to be sad? How long do I have to repent before I experience relationship again? And what he's identifying here is that actually the moment when you realize that you have broken God's commands, it's actually the very same moment you should recognize that you've been handed an opportunity, a gift, and that's worth celebrating. I've shared with you before, but I think it's worth mentioning again because it was such a distinct moment for me personally in, in my life. I had grown up in the church. Um, in fact, I had grown up in the Pentecostal charismatic church, um, and so I had been saved roughly 20,000 times by the time I was 19. Like, I was getting saved every Sunday because I was just not a great kid. Um, and I knew, right, and during the course of the week as we're driving to church in my parents' conversion van that I had taken out the night before, and beer cans are rolling out from under the seats, and my mom's like, what'd you do last night? Like, nothing. <laughs> like, if I could just make it to church, I could get saved again, right? That's just, I was always thinking that. Like I said, a swear word in the parking lot, I better go in and get saved again. I hope I make it to the end of the sermon and don't die halfway through because I need to get saved again. But I can tell you exactly when my conversion happened. I can tell you exactly when I met Jesus in like this life-transforming way. I was 19 years old. I was living in Oak Brook, Illinois at the time. I was walking back to my house that I was staying at, and on my way back, I would walk by this little lake beside the road, and this little grove of trees there, and I don't even know how to describe it other than I felt like I was being pulled into this grove of trees. And it was like, I think I need some time. I don't want to go home yet. I think I need to just stop here for a moment and, and have a conversation with God. 
I stepped into that little grove of trees, and it was almost instantaneous. Like, I can still feel it to this day. Like, I just fell to my knees, and there was this, like, overwhelming sadness, grief over how I had been living my life. Not just the damage I had done to other people, but also um, the rebellion against a God that I knew loved me deeply, that I knew cared deeply about me, that I knew knew best. For It was like this instant, I just like fell to the ground and began weeping. It was so unusual. And then almost in that exact same moment, and this is what's so strange, in that exact same moment, I was overwhelmed with joy, delight, like this sense that this same God was just waiting for me to come home. Like, like he met me in that moment. Like I couldn't draw a line between how long I felt bad and when the joy like hit me. It was like simultaneous. And it was the first time that I began to understand what repentance is actually supposed to feel like. I think for most of us, if we were to ask the question, how long should I repent before I can rejoice? We'd probably get it wrong. Several years later, I was in Bible school. And of course, by this point, um, I'm perfect-ish. I was in Bible school, my first year in Bible school, and, um, and I found myself slipping back into some of my old habits. I was really grieved over this because I was like, man, I thought I was further along. I thought I'd changed more. I thought I was doing better. And, and, and so I came back to my dorm room. I was the only one in there. And I got down on my knees and I had my Bible with me. And, um, and I was just like, I was feeling guilty. I was feeling sad. And, and I felt like um, the Lord asked me to open up my Bible. And I don't know that I'd, I'd probably read this passage at some point, but I'd never memorized it, and I certainly didn't know what it said. But it was one of those moments where you like open up your Bible, and it's Acts chapter 3. And the Lord took me directly to this passage, Acts 3, verse 19, and this is what it says. Therefore, repent and turn back or turn from your wicked ways so that your sins may be wiped out. And as I read it, I remember thinking, yep, I know this part. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm on my knees. That's why, because I need to repent for a while so that God knows I'm sorry. And then I read the rest of it. That seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you, as the Messiah. Oh, you, you want me to repent, or it literally is change my thinking. It doesn't even change my action yet. Repenting is actually change my thinking about and return, turn back to the Lord. Like, change the way you're thinking about this. Turn back to me, and I will shower refreshing on you. How how long do I have to be here? How long do I have to stay on my knees? How long do I have to repent? How bad do I have to feel? I don't know if I feel bad enough. Maybe if I cry a little more. And he's like, no, 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 no. Repent, turn back, refresh. That his intention was for my good. How long do you need to wallow before you can rejoice? 
How long should you grovel before you can get going again? This is the question that all of the religious leaders of the day had. Like, how do we know you're really sorry? How long should you grovel before you can join again or rejoice again or get going again? And so Jesus will tell a parable. You have probably heard it before if you've been around the church much at all. Maybe if you've never been to church, you might have heard it. It's the story of the prodigal son. Really, it's just the story of a prodigal. And in the story, as Jesus tells it, there's a young man, and he has a brother, and he decides that he already wants to get his inheritance from his father. And so for all intents and purposes, he says to dad, dad, I wish you were dead, but since you're not, can I go ahead and get my inheritance now? And I will live as though you're dead. I will take what you are going to give me, what's rightfully mine, and I just want to go live my life. Leave me alone. Let me get out of here, sort of a classic story. And so, so the father gives it to him, and he takes off, and he squanders all of it, and it's gone in no time flat, and he finds himself, which is deplorable as a Jew, living in the pig pens, caring for the pigs, and eating the same food they're eating. And it sort of dawns on him at some moment that I don't want to live this way for the rest of my life, and so he concocts a plan that involves returning to his father. And so here's how it goes, Luke 15, verse 17. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired Servant. I can almost see him standing in front of the mirror. Like, do I look sad enough when I say it? Rehearsing the lines, I know exactly what I'm going to say to dad. Father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer even worthy to be called your son, but would you please just hire me as one of your servants? I know that's all I deserve. Maybe I should put some pig poop on my face. That way I look really sad. What should my, how sad should I look when I go? He's rehearsed it. He knows exactly what he's going to say to his dad, and it's exactly what he starts saying when he gets there. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. He launches right into the line. I mean, he must have been a little bit surprised, right, when dad comes running out to him and embraces him. I didn't expect that, but hey, let me get my lines out. Let me tell you why I'm here, and let me tell you what I'm asking for and what I'm not asking for. And so he launches into it, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And his dad's like, shut up for a minute. His father said to the servants, quick! How, how long is the time frame? How far is the distance between repentance and rejoicing? Quick! Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. Mm. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. What's the time frame between repentance and rejoicing? Quick! It's hard for us to believe that. In fact, how long should I wait to celebrate after confessing my sins? We'll ask the prodigal son how long 
you should wait? Or, or how long should I grovel before I could get back to work in some way, in some form, in some fashion in the kingdom? Well, ask Peter how long you have to wait before you can get reengaged, you can get going again. The distance between repentance and rejoicing shortens every single time you see the Father run to you. When you have that experience, that in this moment, right here, right now, I'm not waiting around for it, I'm going to do exactly what Hebrews 4 says. Hebrews 4 is like, boldly run to the throne of grace, not when you've been really good. You don't need grace then. Boldly run to the throne of grace in your time of need, for there you shall receive mercy. Right? Like, how long? I don't know how long it takes you to turn around and acknowledge that you're in need, that you're dependent on the grace and mercy of the sovereign God of all the universe. For the person who understands the message of the gospel, the deeper your understanding is, the faster you repent. Because there's no risk in repenting. Like every time you see the Father come sprinting towards you, the moment you change your mind and turn back home, he does it over and over again. This is so counter to the culture of the day. In fact, I dare say it's so counter to our culture and our human nature. And yet it is clearly the description in the scriptures. Because God isn't looking for perfect people. He's looking for persuaded people. That you have been convinced that he has everything you need. And the moment you find yourself living in the pig pen and eating from the stall, you turn again home, and the Father comes running. For the person who understands the message of the gospel, you run to the throne, not from it, in your time of need. Amen. Back to Nehemiah. Nehemiah 8, verse 14 they're going to keep on reading in the book of the law and they're going to discover that their moment of repentance, this moment when they are hearing the word of the Lord, um, divinely coincides with a feast, with a festival that's already been established by the Lord. It's known as the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths or Sukkot. And they're going to discover in this moment that they happen to find themselves repenting and entering this festival at the same time. As they studied the law, they discovered that the Lord had commanded through Moses that the Israelites should live in shelters during the festival to be held that month. He had said that a proclamation should be made throughout their towns and in Jerusalem, telling the people to go to the hills, get branches from olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees. They were to use these branches to make shelters in which they would live during the festival as prescribed in the law. So the people went out and cut branches and used them to build shelters on the roofs of their houses, in the courtyards, in the courtyards of God's temple, or in the squares just inside the water gate and the Ephraim gate. So everyone who had returned from captivity lived in these shelters during the festival, and they were all filled with great joy. The Israelites had not celebrated like this since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. If you want to see a party in Israel, go during the Feast of Tabernacles. 
It is a shindig, throw down, hoe down. I mean, it's like a celebration. And it's really weird because everyone moves out of their house and they live in these temporary shelters that they construct. But there's a specific reason they're living in them because it's a reminder to them that they used to be slaves in Egypt. And God delivered them out of Egypt. They were exiles in Egypt. And God brought them out of Egypt. And now he is providing for them in the wilderness while they are living in temporary shelters. And so during this time, you can only imagine, I mean, imagine that you're one of these individuals who has just been brought back from exile in Babylon. The same God who delivered your ancestors out of Egypt and cared for you in the wilderness, that same God just delivered you out of Babylon, and he's going to care for you now in these temporary dwellings that we find ourselves in. He's going to meet you there and provide for you there. And so they've just repented, been delivered out of Egypt, and now they are in this season of God's provision and his care. And God has set up his tabernacle with them in the wilderness. And so they have a party. Like, they hadn't partied like this since the days of Joshua, and now they are celebrating the goodness of God. Now, in Jesus' day, this celebration had some other features that had been taken on. One of them um, was the celebration of the place of water drawing. Doesn't that sound exciting? But it was a celebration of God providing supernaturally water for the city of Jerusalem, um, and they would go down to the pool of Siloam, and they would fill up a pitcher of water, a silver pitcher of water, and they would bring it back to the temple. But as they brought it back, it was like trumpets and dancing. There were people with torches, juggling torches. <laughs> like It was a full-on party, all the way back with this living water that they were going to take up to the altar and pour out there. And so all the people would gather. And then in the evening, they would take those torches and they would light candelabras, 75 feet tall, four of them in the courtyard. And it said that they would give light to the whole city when they were lit at night, like these massive candelabras giving light to the city. And so every day and every night, this was happening during those seven days of the celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a non-stop party with water and with light. In fact, one historian describes it in this way. This is in the Mishnah. It says, he who has not seen the rejoicing at the place of the water drawing has never seen rejoicing in his life. Like, there ain't no party like the party they throw, right? That's what he's describing. And so Jesus has been teaching in Galilee for some time. The religious leaders want to kill him. He's actually concerned about going to Jerusalem right now. And his brothers, who don't believe in him yet, his brothers are taunting him. They're saying, well, if you're a leader, why don't you uh, go ahead and go on into Jerusalem? I mean, your disciples need to see you show off your power. If you're really who you say that you are, go ahead and head to Jerusalem. And Jesus isn't giving in to their taunting, but he is planning to go to Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. In fact, he goes in and he teaches every day while he's there. And on the last day, this is what he says. John 7, verse 37, worship team can come. That's not what he says. <laughs> On the last day, the great day of the festival of Sukkot, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, the crowds who had been dancing and celebrating as they brought the water up day after day after day. Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. 
what he's really saying is, you know, this is actually about this. This is about me. Like, like the water that was provided in the wilderness, the pillar of fire, the light that was provided as you wandered in the wilderness in these tabernacles. I am the light. I am the living water. He goes back to the Mount of Olives and then he returns the next day after the festival is over, after they put out the candles for the last time until the next time. In John 8, verses 1 and 2, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he went back again to the temple. A crowd had gathered and he sat down and taught them. Verse 12, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, I am the light of the world. You don't need the candelabras. They're a representation of something else. You want to you see the light? You want the light to dawn on you? I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. This is Nehemiah 8, take 2. And the question is, how will the people respond this time to the living word being proclaimed? I'll tell you how they responded. They crucified him. They rebelled this time. But I dare say that it's also the same moment we find ourselves in today, here in this room. You may think you're here by accident. You may think, well, I decided to finally just show up and I did my duty, move on with my life. But I never think that on a Sunday. In fact, I'm so um, uniquely humbled that I get to be a part of this. All of us gathered here together, like my prayer in the back as I'm coming out is like, um, listen, I got nothing to offer. I could probably tell a story that might be emotional, but that's not what we're after. None of us are interested in just being moved emotionally. The only thing that could happen that is worth anything is a supernatural move of the Holy Spirit. And so I just say to myself back there, I believe in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit because that's the only thing that can transform a life. You're going to leave this room and you're going to have all your own thoughts and your own fights and your own challenges, but apart from the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, like we got nothing going on except for a momentary high. And so I just say to myself, I believe in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit. And if you could just take my frail words and you can make a difference in our lives, our lives, that would just be the coolest thing in the world. Like, if the name of the Lord could not be forgotten in my generation, if I could put him on display, if I could see him on display in your life, man, I'd spend my whole life for that. That would be a life well spent. The word of the Lord in the flesh, ready to be received. That's why Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 says this, today when you hear my voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled, when they tested me in the wilderness in the tabernacles. There your ancestors tested and tried my patience, even though they saw my miracles for 40 years. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. I want to invite you to stand with us. I think often the question I'm asking coming into a Sunday is, what's the practical application? Like, what do you go and do from here? But what I want to remind us of today is that whatever we go and do from here 
unless it is predicated by repentance is of little value. This is actually the starting place, is the recognition that I need to go home. You want to get involved in adoption, you want to get involved in foster care and all of those things, I can think of no better way than you understanding that you've actually been adopted. That like your father, the sovereign God of all the universe, your creator who knew you before one of your days ever came to pass, it is by the spirit of adoption that we cry, dad, that we get the privilege and the joy of calling him father. And apart from experiencing that yourself, the sheer joy of adoption Like, I'll never forget that day. I mean, after months and months and months of pursuing the courts and going through the process, and now it's adoption day for our daughter, and we're in the courtroom, and all of our friends and Homer are in there. I mean, like, the courtroom is packed full. And when the judge hits that gavel, and like the joy that erupts in that place, that's what happened when I was adopted by him. That's how it's literally described in the scriptures, like all of heaven erupts in celebration when the gavel falls and the sentence is dismissed and Jesus says, I covered it all and I run to God saying, Dad, I'm home. Unless you experience that, all of our efforts will actually produce no fruit in us. And I want to join God in what he's doing And the distance between repentance and rejoicing is quick. It's now. And so Jesus, as we lift our voices in songs of celebration and worship, may we wrap our hearts and our minds around this idea that repentance is the place where the joy of the Lord becomes our strength, that it is in our weakness that your name is made great. And may we be a people who joyfully and quickly run to your throne in our time of need. And may we see the Father running to us over and over again. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.